Welcome, Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we are joined by Mr. Tim Sekulich to discuss his job as AFRL's Executive Director, The Art of Subtraction, and what makes Scandinavian crime fiction so captivating. In three, two, one. Mr. Sekulich, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad you could join us. Uh, for our listeners, you're the executive director of the Air Force Research Laboratory, and we're definitely going to dive into what that role and title means later. To simplify it, you're the top civilian at AFRL. You have a job that requires you to solve a lot of problems, many of which we're going to get into as well. But anyone that's been on a team with you knows that you're going to bring reading suggestions to help tackle those problems. I've been on teams before, and I know I was given a John Cotter and a Harvard Business Review assignment, I think in the email that said, hey, we need your help. So um, Ken and I were pretty surprised to learn that you're a big fan of Scandinavian crime fiction as well, not just Harvard Business Review. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's my total escapism genre. I, you know, and I'm not exactly sure I can pinpoint when that became a thing for me. I think I watched the uh, Swedish version of the girl with the dragon tattoo based on Steg Larsson's novel. And that was so engaging and different that I thought, well, I've got to check this out more. And suddenly I, I started checking books out of library and then it was Kindle and very much enjoyed it. Uh, again, total escapism when I just don't want to think about anything about work or whatever. So. so I have to know then with that, I imagine that this crime genre, while very fascinating, I don't know how big it is. So is a lot of this translated to English or have you been learning Swedish, like uh, any Nordic languages to help with it? I won't joke around by pretending to give you a, uh, a Swedish or a Danish accent because it'll sound ridiculous. They're, they're so popular that many of these authors are translated into English. So authors like Joe Nesbo, and he has a detective, Carrie Hull, Henning Mankel, Kurt Wallander is his detective, Juicy Alder Olsen, Carl Mork, Lars Kepler as a writing team that goes by a single name. So many of these authors are very widely available here in the United States. And they're a little bit different because unlike sort of a police procedural style of American crime fiction, they're a little darker. And interestingly enough, oftentimes they weave in contemporary social issues that are part of the plot, part of the mystery, if you will, sometimes uh, part of what the main character, the main detectives are dealing with in their personal lives. So I found it very interesting and it also is a little bit of a window on a different part of the world, quite frankly, you know, how cultural differences in perspectives play out through the lens of fiction, right? That does sound a little more interesting than John Cotter's eight-step change model that I- Oh, come I, on. I, I, that you recommended to me, but I, I've got something for the list now. But if we swing back to leadership and change management books, you said that your job description as executive director includes- solving unusual problems of complexity. <laughs> so that sounds like a big headache. What are the problems that you're solving and why do you enjoy solving them? It's always funny I'm looking at job descriptions, but that particular line, you know, being responsible for solving uh, management problems uh, frequently of unusual complexity is sort of a perfect description of what day-to-day -day is like in the things that come across my desk, but also really the big strategic things that the lab is trying to accomplish in its mission. And so typically we have phenomenal people across the laboratory doing amazing work and deep experts and not just at the technical bench, but in finance and contracting, right? I mean, it's this whole team thing. 
But even that, sometimes the challenges when it comes to our human capital or some of our business processes or just, you know, customers coming to us to say they need help with, you know, fill in the blank, don't naturally fit in one in a particular bucket, right? Or we don't have a standing team already set up to do that. So what I do a lot in my job is bring people together where we don't already have a playbook or a standard operating procedure or something to pull off the shelf. Here's how to solve this problem. And so I always enjoy that because, you know, there's a few head scratchers in there too, but it's a great opportunity to get people working together on new challenges that kind of stretch our, our brain a little bit and also give a sense of accomplishment, right? So this is something that, that nobody else could do. We managed to make it work. But speaking of your position, you've been our executive director for a year now since April or now of in April, 2022. Uh, what are some big wins or priorities that you've worked on? I'm glad you asked the question that I've worked on as opposed that I have personally accomplished, because I, I've got to say back to the point I made before, so many of the things that are important are complex and are all fundamentally dependent upon different perspectives and expertise coming together. So the things that I've worked on have all had those attributes. There's been true experts in a particular area. And my job has been to typically facilitate the gathering of those experts, make sure we're focused on what is the, the problem or the goal that we're trying to achieve, and then get roadblocks out of the way. One of the things about the vantage point of being in the executive director role is you have a little bit of institutional authority that goes with that. And it gives you the ability to move things out of the way that are impeding the progress of the team. So when you look at some of the things that have been sort of feature to my job. The human capital strategy is certainly one of those. I got to give props to Julia Paracott and all of the human capital team leads across that whole spectrum for the incredible work they've done. But in my role, I play an executive championing job for that team. And so I've had the opportunity to work very closely with all of the team members and on the uh, goals that are the foundational part of what that strategy is all about. So the big accomplishment was together and with the strong mentoring and, and vision of the commander, Julia was able to bring this whole team together and we published the human capital strategy uh, in the September timeframe of last year, really the first comprehensive one of the lab that is soup to nuts from the point of you know, recruiting and, and STEM, K through 12 STEM, all the way through the, the hiring and the supporting the development and the self-actualization of the entire workforce and driven by strategic goals. I think that's a pretty amazing thing to have because it gives us a playbook, uh, gives us a little bit of um, inspiration and some goals and those lead to objectives that we can actually measure progress against. And ultimately, this is about supporting and enabling the workforce to be able to contribute to their best. And this is crucial for our mission because it's such an important mission that we have. So we want an environment where talent can converge on problems and deliver awesome scientific and technical innovation to support airmen and guardians. So I love the fact that, that I've had the opportunity to be a part of that human capital strategy journey. It's not like there's... 800 experts in some of these fields that you're recruiting for, as General Pringle likes to call us, her unicorns. <laughs> so there, you know, exactly. many of these things are kind of one of a kind. So attracting and retaining those folks, it begs a really robust strategy. 
Well, and it's a whole team effort, right? So I don't personally sit in my office doing the recruiting of all of that talent. We have a whole enterprise and we have areas of the laboratory that are specialized in certain technology areas. And they are doing the the recruiting because they know their field of the technology community the best. What I want to do is make sure we're making that as easy and fast as possible, moving roadblocks out of the way, and that we have the whole enterprise essentially optimized to support all of that talent recruiting, onboarding, development, and the ability to contribute to the mission. Some of the things that I I have been personally involved in, though, just continue to emphasize the incredible talent that we do get to attract. You know, I I have a part in hiring our executive scientists. I have a part in hiring some of our our specialized talent that may require headhunters to go and recruit. Uh, And so that's a lot of fun. And it's not just our scientists and engineers. I'm talking about the whole workforce. This laboratory is comprised of an incredibly diverse set of expertise that ranges from business to technology. And we want top talent and opportunity for folks to be a part of that journey, whatever their role is in the laboratory. And it's really important to me that every individual in the workforce is able to connect meaningfully to our mission and be able to tap into that sense of purpose and recognize the value of what they contribute to the larger mission. There are very few problems that we work on that don't require multiple types of talent to come together. And so we want an entire team that feels that sense of connectivity to the mission. Something you've, you've talked to us in the past about is we often give our teams credits for creation, but we don't always give glory for subtraction. So back to you loving reading, you recently shared an article about the art of subtraction. What's that and how could it be a big win? Sure. Every once in a while, there's one of those articles. I mean, all of the Harvard Business Review articles that I read and other journals, but that's one in particular that's very recognizable. They always are thought provoking. And just a couple of weeks ago, one came across there, which was about exactly what you said. When we're facing with changing circumstances and trying to evolve or transform organizations and missions, there's a tendency to look at that landscape of what we do and start adding things to that to solve new problems, but forgetting the part about taking away maybe processes or reporting or the ways we do work that are based on legacy practices that may be out of date or not adding value. And there was an interesting picture. So if I could just kind of paint it verbally for you, imagine a grid that has blocks filled in that form a cross. And if you're asked to make a a symmetric image from that, and I give you one additional block colored in somewhere in one of those quadrants, psychologists have proven that people will tend to fill in more blocks to create symmetry back in the image instead of removing the block uh, that was added. And so, you know, this whole idea is sometimes the right answer is to take things out of the equation, remove them because those cost energy, time, resources to do so we can free up things for the most important parts of our mission. And, you know, it's not like you can take that formula and just go, you know, run down a list of everything I do and start subtracting off. Although there's, I would love to be able to do that. It's a mindset, right? It's a mindset. And the whole point of this is when we write awards, how many awards do we write celebrating that somebody removed something that we no longer needed to do. We tend to write awards around something new that was added. It was just a really good thought-provoking thing that we need to celebrate when we take things out. Sometimes we just do it and move on with it and we forget to say that too is a big deal.
And again, when we look at it through the lens of what we're trying to do in digital transformation or high-performing headquarters, another thing that I'm part of, or, or our human capital, what are the non-value-adding things that we're doing that we should stop doing? And that is as transformational as adding something new. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of what some folks on the digital transformation team are focusing on doing is like eliminating toil in some of our business processes or friction, these things that they should just work or you automate your life, things that should just happen. And so you're subtracting a lot of work, but you're still getting the mission done. You just don't have to right. spend as much energy on certain certain efforts. Right. The catchphrase of the digital transformation, you know, the made transformation, this model, analyze, decide, execute. You know, there's some principles that are behind that. Faster research, better decision, streamlined our technology transitions. And then the word you use, low friction business operations. And, you know, as a technologist, we should all know that it takes energy to overcome static friction. And when it's moving, friction drains energy out of the system. And so we want to eliminate that friction in everything we do. This is as much about design thinking as it is about the technology itself. There's a famous IT company who I won't name, but a fruit is very much associated with their name. And one of the things that's made them very effective is a focus on user-centered design. And you know this idea of you want the technology to just work, you shouldn't have to think about it. And I'm talking about the technology of doing business operations. And that's contrasting with the cutting edge research that we do where we're trying to understand and uh, what works and how it works so that we can exploit that to our advantage. So we're really talking about business operations. We just want it to work. We don't want it to have to take time to figure out how many clicks do I need to do to be able to sign a document or how many windows do I have to open up and drag and drop data between things? How many forms do I have to sign to accomplish something? And, and I always like to use the example that you can spend a whole lot of money on a, uh, on a marketplace website in just a couple of clicks, but to approve a leave form, how many clicks does it take to do something as simple as that? It's just, it's just crazy because uh, we designed in these processes around what I call 19th century models of paper. And then we digitized the paper, but we really didn't change the process. We just made it with digital paper, but it's the same work. And we got to think about things differently to free up time from the mechanics of doing the mission to the intellectual cutting edge breakthroughs that are the core of our mission. Yeah, I mean, that's what it sounds like really bringing a lot of that together is this idea that people may have a negative connotation with taking away, but it's efficiency. It's the idea that you're right. If you create extra steps by moving one thing from one you know medium like paper to another, it should be easier, right? <laughs> so I definitely agree. Like I've never really thought of it that way, but uh, going forward on resumes, it makes sense to say, hey, I'll also remove this. That's pretty cool. You're talking about reading. There's a there's a wonderful book that's called, it's by, uh, uh, author's name is Tenet, and it's called When Technology Bites Back. And there's a really funny section in that book that talks about the ironic uh, Ness, the paperless office. So those of the, 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 some of us who were around back when computers were first, you know, really becoming mainstream in the workplace, I will say, I've just heard this. I'm not going to say that I saw it, but anyway, and the, the big thing was a paperless office, right? We're going to transform from paper-based to electronic and we're making it the paperless office. And what the research showed is we actually generated more consumption of paper by doing that. And here's why, because it used to be, you had a copy of a document that was circulated through, right? And of course, not saying this is great. It's just the way it was. But then we had everybody with an electronic copy of the document and they all printed it, their own copy. 
And so we actually multiplied the consumption of paper trying to make something quote unquote more efficient. So as we think about low friction business operations, we have to be really careful that we're really thinking through all of the unintended consequences too, and not just shifting the problem from one place to another place. I think that really touches on a lot of the work that you and your team are doing of trying to find these areas, like you said, of in, like, that aren't congruent with what's happening, doing investigative work and thinking from angles you may not originally have seen beforehand, which brings up the question then, you're doing all this amazing stuff, but what drives you? Do you have any core principles that you kind of apply to your career that help you every day? Well, I think that the best way to describe that for me personally is if we were to point to drivers, I resonate when I have a sense of purpose. And that's what compels me, motivates me, inspires me to do my best, whether it's you know, on a job or, or a hobby or my family. It's having a sense of purpose behind that, you know, the why that's there. Uh, I'm very passionate about what I do. Uh, those that know me, again, would recognize that immediately. When I'm committed and purposeful, there's a lot of passion behind that too. And I get excited about being able to make a difference not just for me, but for other people. That's probably the best part of my job is when I can make a difference for someone else. And, and there's passion behind that. And that leads to the people. We are a technology enterprise. There's a face behind every technology breakthrough or a team of faces, right? And that doesn't matter whether it's a technology thing or, or again, a business thing that we're trying to solve. This is a human endeavor. And so is conflict, right? War is a human endeavor. And the technology that enables war is just as much a human endeavor. And we hope we never have to put that technology in use in anger, but there's real people behind that, that we need the creativity and the drive. And so being people-centered in how I approach the job is processes and technology are parts of the job, but it's people that are the engine that makes all that work. If you think about it, the machinery of an organization, relationship and mutual respect and understanding are sort of the lubricant that makes that machine run smoothly. That's a people-centered kind of way of looking at it. So, you know, purpose, passion, and people, sort of my points of resonance when it comes to how do I see my role in a professional setting, but just my life in general. So really neat part of that then, like you really hit those three points right in the head. And we'd love to know kind of how that built up through your career. So we're going to take a, a quick step back and see how this all started. But we know really looking briefly at your history, um, you've been in the Air Force for a while, including time at the Air Force Academy and decades as an active duty officer. So how did your interest in the Air Force and STEM fields all begin? That's a great question. When, when I was in high school, all the way back in high school, I fell in love with chemistry and I had a great teacher and I went to the academy to become an Air Force officer, but I also wanted to get a degree in chemistry. And so I started down that pathway. And then the math department came along and sort of wooed me over to that direction, to the dark side, according to the chemistry department. Anyway, I got a real bug there and ended up getting my uh, master's degree at North Carolina State in uh, applied mathematics. I thought coming out of there, I'd had an opportunity to work at Los Alamos National Laboratory as a service academy graduate on an internship program there. And I had a by name request lined up to go to Kirtland Air Force Base to what was then called the Weapons Lab. And right at the end of my degree, I got contacted by Military Personnel Center saying, hey, Lieutenant, guess what? Congratulations, you're going to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, not to the laboratory, but to Air Force Logistics Command. So my whole career started out as a logistician, actually, doing operations research analysts analysis. And by the way, I love 
that. Logistics Command was amazing. It merged eventually with what is now Air Force Material Command. But it was really 20 years later before I actually had a first job in what was now, what at that point was AFRL. And so I came in as the deputy director of materials and manufacturing uh, as a colonel. Uh, I had a short stint up at the headquarters working a transformation project back then, and then went back to materials as the, the military director of the organization. So we'd actually transition from an SES director to a military director uh, for a short period of time. And that, that was an incredible and humbling opportunity to lead an amazing organization. If you ask the question, how did I get the passion? It was that organization where I got the true, true bug for being part of the laboratory. When I came in as the deputy, the director was amazing, took me under his wing. It was like, who is this guy, Sekulich? Where did he come from? And said, okay, I got to teach you the ropes about what s is all about. And he was a phenomenal mentor, but so was the whole organization. I felt blessed to be mentored by so many people, some of whom are still serving in the, in the directorate today or have gone on into other positions across the laboratory, one of whom is our now chief technologist, Dr. Tim Bunning. I knew him back at that time as well. And I just fell in love with the people and the work. So back to the things that resonate with me, it was a sense of purpose that was there. People were passionate about what they were working on. I mean, it was like true believers in the need for materials and manufacturing technology to solve really hard problems. And, and the people that were behind all that were just really cool to be around. And I think it's awesome to be surrounded by people who inspire you to be on your best game. They inspire you to be your best at whatever you're doing. And that's the experience I had in materials and manufacturing. And that stuck with me. So fast forward from that time all the way to when I retired from active duty, where do I want to be when I grow up? Some would argue I have not yet. So that we'll just set that aside for a moment. Um, where do I want to be? I said, I, I really like to find my way back to the laboratory and continue serving but as a civilian. And so I went to the 7-Eleventh Human Performance Wing as their senior planner, and then had the wonderful opportunity to serve as that wing's first civilian vice director. That longest period of time I've held any job actually. And then things just started happening. I uh, had the opportunity twice to serve as the acting director and the information directorate. And then when the SES position at the RX directorate came open, I put my name in the hat and was just so honored to have been picked to one, be brought into the ranks of the senior executives, and then also to be able to lead an amazing organization like the Materials and Manufacturing Directorate. Two weeks after that, I got a call from the commander here asking me to go lead the 2030 strategy implementation. And so uh, I was yanked out of there and then did the next couple of years part and then full-time doing strategy went back to the materials manufacturing director to pick up being the director there. And then I was asked if I would consider applying for this executive director job, a job that in my wildest dreams, I never imagined that I would be able to serve this amazing organization in a capacity like that. So again, humbling, inspiring, exciting, and I am so deeply connected in with the bug of science and technology and what we do here in this laboratory. I think it would be really tough to even pry me loose from serving somewhere. And, you know, I know the boss has said this, I will serve anywhere in this organization, regardless of the position. I agree. That's the kind of place this is. And it's 
really wonderful when we get to show others who may not live and breathe science and technology every day, who may have a mental model of what the laboratory is all about. And then we get to show them. And it's not just the cool stuff, it's the people. And what's behind all that cool stuff that makes it, that makes it all happen. That's a great place. So I am totally in. I am infected, if we want to use the bug metaphor, right? I'm infected with science and technology passion. We can definitely tell that you're, you're charged up by the work you do here at the lab. And, you know, it's amazing that not getting your first assignment led you ultimately to an assignment you never dreamed you could attain. And we want to dive a little bit into a different topic. Uh, we, we've talked about a lot of problems today. There's a Jay-Z song called 99 Problems, and we can't talk about the lyrics here. There's a lot of memes out there. People need to Google it. Um, so when you're ready to de decompress about all the stuff you're taking care of, uh, everything at the lab, what kind of music do you put on? Is it alt-rock, rap, country? Wow, what a great question. None of the above. My go-to genres are actually classical music and, and jazz, and there's particular eras of that. I got the bug with classical music actually from soundtracks. Um, believe it or not, it was the movie Excalibur and the piece in there that is famous, it was O oh, Fortuna. And it was a just really exciting. I thought, well, I got to really learn more. So I started going back to the original classical music that that was based on and got really excited about it. I will tell you, my go-to places now are the Romantic era. So it's like the mid-1800s, mid-19th century, and the Impressionist era, particularly Debussy and Ravel. I just find them so interesting uh, and relaxing to listen to the way those composers took music and painted an oral picture, right, with that music. It was just really cool to me. And as a technologist and uh, who, you know, science and, and art have to go together to create true innovation. I thought this is a really cool genre of music. So I got a real, real bug around impressionist music and I love it. If I need a positive uplift, I go to the American classics, you know, Copeland, Bernstein, Gershwin, those are awesome. But I love mid 20th century jazz and the singers, Ella Fitzgerald and Nina Simone, Billie Holiday, just to name a few of them. I can sit in the evening and just have that on and, and just sort of immerse into that world. And it just is a take me away and, and I'm off, just my mind is freed and relaxed and ready to recharge and go back to another day. Michelle, that, that may be everything. So we really appreciate your time, Mr. Sekulich. It really means a lot to talk to you, hear about your passion, and of course, the amazing job you do every day. We really appreciate you having, here, or having you here today. Thanks. And, and again, I appreciate the references to amazing job, but really, truly, this is a, a, it's not cliche. It is truly a team effort. And I am part of that, not to in any way suggest otherwise with your compliments. It is a team effort every day. And I'm just honored to be a part of that and to help orchestrate when needed, to get things out of the way we needed, but just to support this amazing team that we have all dedicated to the AFRL mission, Airman, Guardian, military, civilian, doesn't matter, it's awesome. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.